Is it a guy thing? What I'm about to say, I'm not sure. Maybe. Suck it the fuck Maybe. up. No. Oh no 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 no. That was whoa whoa. That's definitely <laughs> a guy thing. I just, I would have been clear that that was that would have been a guy thing to say. <laughs> of all the guyest things to say, that right, would be right, right. the guyest of guy right, things to say. Right. Nah nah. I would have needed a sign to just drop out the ceiling like guy shit. <laughs> you know. Welcome to another episode of Dive in Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I am Delma Jackson. And I'm Shandine Garcia. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Bayo Akomalafe. So stay tuned. You will not want to miss it. Hey, Shandine, I am wondering what's been on your mind lately. What are you... What are you into? What are you following? I have been looking a lot at Ukraine, um, as I think many of us have, but I'm wondering about you. Well, I feel like I have an embarrassing confession. I feel like the episodes are all about embarrassing confessions. So embarrassing confession from before is that I don't watch the Dave Chappelle show. Embarrassing confession today is that I'm not following the news on what's going on with Ukraine and Russia and the United States and coverage. I'm not watching any of it. And I, you can't fully ignore it because I do listen to NPR in the morning or, and I do see pieces and posts on social media, mm -hmm. but um, I, I took my bonus son with me to go to a graphic novel bookstore and I picked up a graphic novel called Grass Mm -hmm. by, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, um, so I'm just going to do it phonetically. It's Kayum Suk Kendry Kim. Mm -hmm. And it's about comfort women, quote unquote. I'm, I'm saying it in quotes because my understanding is that term is a translation of the Japanese, and I don't, again, don't know how to pronounce this, ayanfu, which is a euphemism for prostitutes. Okay. And um, I didn't know all of the details. I'm not naive. I know like insane amounts of rape happen for women during war and girls. Mm -hmm. But reading this graphic novel, it's about, you know, these women and girls who were forced into sexual slavery um, by the um, IJA, the Imperial Japanese Army mm -hmm. during World War II. And I think it was also even a little bit before World War II. But, and this author at least in her note at the end of it, really was trying not to sensationalize it, was really actually trying to just tell the bare facts through um, an interview with this person who was a forced, a person who was forced into sexual slavery. And the images without the sensationalism, I don't know, I'm, I can't stop thinking about these hundreds and thousands of women who were raped again and again. And there was one phrase in particular. It was like she was talking to Granny, I think is what she was calling her. She was talking to her on Sunday about what it was like on a Sunday. And she said, oh, on Sundays it was worse because the the soldiers had the day off. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, so I'd be raped like 30, 40 times. Mm -hmm. 
I cannot get that out of my head. I can't get like these women's lives out of my head. And I feel like if I go and shift and look at images of war, mm-hmm. there's no way that's not also happening again in some way. Mm-hmm. And we're just not aware of it. And I'm also not naive. I know forced sexual slavery is happening right now in, you know, they, it, Portland is known mm-hmm. for having um, that here. I'm not, but something about this book, something about these images, something about my insane rage that I was never taught this in detail in school. Mm-hmm. And then I watched a video of, which is dumb because I started then chasing down more information about it. But I watched a video of one of, um, of uh, a woman who was, gosh, she had to be in her eighties, who was yelling at a Japanese official, I believe. I think he was a Japanese. No, maybe he was a, he was an official of some sort, um, talking about apologizing for this time and the translation on the bottom of her yelling was her saying, how can you apologize to us when you haven't spoken to us? Hmm. How are you able to make, you know, repair when you don't even know what it is you're apologizing for? I mean, her bone soul deep, vitriolic anger, rage, grief, hurt, just flew off that screen and that's all that's in my head. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot, um, I can't watch the news mm-hmm. and I feel super irresponsible about not knowing what's going on, which then triples the level of irresponsibility around shit that I know is happening here. So yeah, not a lot of, happy in that, in that check-in no it's a lot of no not, not a lot of happy. Op- opposite one might might say opposite um, opposite <clears throat> i just don't understand i know it has to do and i and i was looking up some shit and i know it has to do with this fucked up notion of what what people think men need I just like, how can these men just do this? I don't get it. I don't understand how we can live in a world where this is a thing. I, I don't know that I want to get it, but I, it just, it undoes me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid to watch the news. Mm-hmm. I don't think my goal is to be desensitized, but I don't want to be this uh, activated, if you will. I don't know the term for it. I think activated works. Yeah. Oh, shit. That, That is heavy. And... In the context of, because you've talked before about sexual assault and 
statistics, particularly on um, reservations? It's an indigenous woman. It's not just reservations. It's beyond the, reservations. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why it's, it was particularly poignant on reservations, because until the law was recently changed, it was legal for people to sexually assault women and, and uh, like white men to rape indigenous women on tribal land, on reservations, because they weren't held to the same level. It's a whole other it's thing. That's a whole other episode. Diplomatic community kind of. Right. Swear to fucking God. It's fucking insane. That's been changed. That law has been changed, but the the numbers of rape are still present. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so just for clarification, no, it's not just um, on the reservation. There is. So, my apologies for 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 that. Um, no, no, you're fine. There's um a context in which you've already spoken to that then this piece around comfort women, this piece around what's going on anywhere there's global conflict. You're, you're like systemic sexual assault has always been a part of global conflicts, right? Um, even when the conflict is not um, stated, like in the case of indigenous women. Yeah. Um, I spent some time um, looking into this in the context of uh, sexual assault on and off the plantation and since the end of slavery all the way up through the uh, surviving R. Kelly documentary. Uh Uh My dream Hampton. This trajectory is one in which I understand like my 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 um emotional connection to this comes from the fact that there are so many in my life who have been impacted directly by sexual assault. Um I don't move in a world, I don't move in this world as someone who fears sexual assault or has ever feared it for myself, right? Um, And so the only comparable thing I have is having to move to the world in which I might be afraid of the state apparatus in terms of my safety. Um, And in that, there's a sensitivity I've experienced that forces me to retreat from headlines. And so I say Uh to you, and I'm pretty sure you know this already, but to say, you know, I can't follow the news right now. Um, I think it's an act of self-care. And I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I would force myself to engage with everything that came across because I felt obligated. Uh-huh. Um, 
And so as I've aged, I've begun to better understand and research has begun to better understand the impact of that on our health. And so I don't think it's irresponsible. I think it's responsible of you to recognize where you are. And it's not like you won't jump back in. It's not like you're swearing off current events for the rest of your life. You're just taking them some time, right? This has echoes of a previous episode. I don't remember when, and I don't remember what I was off at that time too. And you said the same thing. And I don't think I heard it to the degree that I'm hearing it right now, which my father would say, that's because you're stubborn. And it takes a thousand times before you actually hear it. My brother would say, um, you're okay. You just have to be in the right location and the right time for your, for, yeah, for you to be ready to fully hear it. But I think, mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was. I wasn't watching again at the time. It wasn't, I don't think it was the January 6th thing because we were glued watching that. It was something, mm-hmm. but um I appreciate the reminder and it feels more, it feels like it's sinking in more. Mm-hmm. I do want to find some way to feel that sense of compassion for self. The moment it hits, like that, that's the first thing that comes to mind, right? If someone's like, have you been following the Ukraine stuff? Like what's going on? And that my response is that, no, I'm a fucking terrible human being. I can't watch it because I'm in some headspace, but rather, no, actually, um, feel free to update me. I haven't been watching it because I've been in the middle of some self-care because it's triggering a lot of stuff from things that I'm learning and the world that my people engage in. Mm-hmm. I'm not at the place where I can say that with just absolute ease, confidence, and I'll just say it, but feel it and believe it. But um, I like the, I like that this time I'm hearing it better. So. In that vein, tell me what's going on. <laughs> yeah, because I... I know you're a you're a, a media person. You don't just listen to NPR. You chase down BBC. You chase down mm-hmm. um, Al Jazeera. You chase down all these other um, forms of news in hopes to give yourself a more rounded idea of what the hell's happening. Yeah. So what the hell's happening? I have to confess, what I haven't been chasing down is is Fox Breitbart shit. I have not taking one gander at what they've had to say and i will you know um i i catch shit here and there it comes in my news feed i do have fox news in my news feed so i catch headlines but i haven't read their stuff i I can't right now i just can't, can't deal with them um but i will be be going back into that but no the the thing that um the thing that feels important to name around the ukraine Russia conflict is that um, there have been Nicole Hannah-Jones was the first headline I saw and it was from Fox News Uh blasting her for blasting the media coverage in terms of how Ukraine Uh is covered. Uh And I was so happy to see her name it 
given her voice is so prominent right now, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But she's been far from the only one. And I've seen think piece after think piece after think piece. Um, There's this brother I follow on the BBC um, whose name escapes me right now. Um, But for lack of a better term, he's like my left wing darling across the pond. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, um, he has a pretty promise. Li- listeners, you didn't see this, but Delma actually put his hand on, on his my heart. heart. <laughs> on my heart. You know? Um, yeah, no, nah, he, he, he has his own show on BBC. He's pretty, uh, he's a pretty prominent voice and face on BBC. Um, and he was, he was giving him the same analysis like it comes down to all of the uh, the bias toward white skin, you know, blonde hair, blue eye. There have been so many reporters, and by the time this episode airs, I'm almost sure most of our listeners will have caught wind of this uh, non-controversy controversy, which is how. Um, Mainstream media talks about Ukrainian people in this conflict. For instance, there's been a lot of praise for their courage because of how many of them have just taken up arms against Russia. Uh I can't recall black and brown folks ever being praised as courageous for taking up arms against an invading force in their own countries. You know, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the Palestinians like that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of folks we don't talk about like that. Mm -hmm. Um, These comparisons, right? This isn't Syria. Mm -hmm. I can't believe this is happening. These people look like people we live next door to. Somebody actually says some shit like that. Our ne- these are these look like our next door neighbors, as though the rest of us look like what? <laughs> right, right. Like we, well, we're not in that pronoun. Like we from, right, we're not in the we're not in the we. No, we're not. It's that they have a we and we have a we. Yeah, that's their we. That's their we. You know. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe this is happening in Europe in 2022. That that might be my favorite. Um, global conflicts, large scale conflicts that cross boundaries and continents are are typically produced out of Europe. Always have been. It's, to me, it is a prime example of the dissonance that is required to be in a position of, to maintain position of power. Um, The story you tell yourself is so far removed from the story the rest of us understand to be true. Um... Because if you're surprised that Europe 
can have its own internal conflicts. You haven't been paying attention. I don't think dissonance is the word though, right? So dissonance is when there's like, like you feel that harsh, harsh, like sort of disagreement. They don't feel it. They're completely disconnected from it. I was under the impression that's what dissonance was. I thought dissonance was like one, I think of dissonance almost like discordant, like a, 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 a like a combo of sounds that can't come together. Right. Sure. Right. Or like you, there's like, and they're not, they're, they're having complete disconnect from it. It's like they're divorced from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're, I'm feeling the dissonance in them. Like, <laughs> like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Like, are they, how absolutely ignorant, purposely ignorant do you have to be to be a media journalist and say dumbass shit like the shit you're telling me right now they're saying? Yeah. Like, like how completely far removed do you have to be to say shit like, can't believe it's happening in Europe. I can't believe they're like my, it's like, it's like they're happening to my neighbors. Like how fucking far removed from not just your soul, but from the world. How tight is your fucking bubble that that's your reality? As a journalist. It is necessary, I think, for... Mm. You cannot have white supremacy without telling yourself you are supreme. And and doing everything you can to maintain that reality in your head. And so when anything comes up that contradicts your view of yourself, your view of your origin story, your people, quote unquote, when anything comes up that doesn't support that, You have to be surprised. You have to be. Because if you were not surprised, it's it's similar to those who were surprised when Trump won office. I can't believe America would vote, you know, people on the white folks on the left, like I can't believe we put Trump in office. then that means you don't understand the country you live in. You don't understand the history. You don't understand this place. You live in a very different world from the one that I occupy. Yeah. You told yourself a story coming off of the Obama years. That just does not make sense. Yeah. You know? And it's the same with patriarchy. I mean, when I have talked about Sexual assault in my own community. And, you know, made a call to have a conversation, a community conversation about sexual assault in the black community. The number of men who took the time to reach out to me on social media Uh and basically tell me I'm wrong for having Uh that conversation there's a shock and awe component to it. Like, I can't believe mm-hmm. component to it. It's the same shit. It's a dissonance. Yeah. 
then you want to play what about ism? Yeah. You know? Um, social media is posi- has positioned us to where we can call out the mainstream media much faster and in a more harmonious, single voice kind of way. It's been nice to see that. Some of these major news outlets have already begun apologizing for the way they've covered this conflict. Um, now, to what extent there will be accountability, I don't know, but it's still nice to see that there's some real-time communication happening. Um, will I change their reporting in the future? I don't know. But I'm glad they're naming it, you know? I totally agree. And I don't know where, um, what, what the accountability could or should look like. I go through seven rounds in my head around things like that. Um, but I think accountability should be visible. So I had this, this idea looking at the, the, the work of our guest, looking at some of his work. I had an idea. Um, I want an accountability reality show. <laughs> like, <clears throat> I'm thinking back to our conversation about Joe Rogan, right? I'm thinking mm-hmm. about Chappelle. Like, I want to have an organization that's paired with a television studio type <laughs> situation. And you just know when you fuck up, we're not going to fire you. You got to come see you us. You just have to be on the show. You got to come see us. That is going to be reality television at its finest because we're going <laughs> to grapple with this shit together in the public. And the hope is where you start when you came on the show is very different from where you are by the time you leave our program. We graduating these motherfuckers. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> and then y'all get to go back into y'all career because the people got to watch your journey. They ready to accept your apology because they know what you've been through. But if you're actually changed in the process, then when everybody wins. I feel like it should be a step further. What are those shows where they where they drop where they drop you on an island and you'd stay there, or you like the end you get, yeah, or like the destination wedding, like you like the dating thing, whatever. I feel it's not just a show because they're not gonna these fucking people aren't gonna get there in a show. Hmm. Put them all over time. Keep that camera on, you know, uh, Jim Carrey style with that. What was that show? The Truman Show. Where they're watching you the whole time. Truman Show. Keep them on like the whole, keep the camera going the whole time. Um, You just want to put a bunch of people who fucked up on the island together? Yes. With no training. Let's just watch what happens. No, with the the parachute of facilitators in that space. (laughs) And just accountable, 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 and just... We'll call it Accountable Island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Let's flesh this out. I think we got something here. I think we got something. And we get to choose the music and the food and the entertainment. I like where you're going with this. 
<laughs> I like where you're going with this. Not- what they have to read, what they have to do, what they have to watch, what they have to dance to. Do they get eliminated? What they have to listen to. Do people to- get eliminated? Mm. What's that? The show Fear Factor? Uh-huh. They don't get eliminated, but they have to be put in like the box of spiders. Did you if they- purposely name the show that Joe Rogan used to host? No, I don't even know. <laughs> When Joe Rogan used to host, did he host Fear Factor? Not only did he host Fear Factor, there's a skit he did with Dave Chappelle about Fear Factor on the Chappelle show. (laughs) Boom. Full circle. I love it. I love it. I mean, yes, I did purposely name it. I was was trying to bring it full circle. That was brilliant. I see what you did. I see what you did there. Mm. Let's do that. Let's have our accountability island. I'm with it. I'm all for it. I'm here for it. Um, you think I'm playing, but I'm kind of serious. I feel like in today's media, that might be the way to get it done. That might in be. today's media, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, nah. We might as well all get paid off of this bullshit. <laughs> and, and and let the people see what's... I, I want to... Huh? I want to be in charge of the entertainment. Yeah, I know. I want to be in charge of what... the part you keep honing in on. Um, on what... They're going to eat, what they're going to watch, what they're going to see, what they're going to, what I'm going to put in front of them. I already have like comics in my head lined up I want them to listen to. I already have books lined up in my head I want to force them to listen to, pods I want to force them to listen to. My, to. my friend has this phrase that he says all the time, which is, no one is disposable. Mm-hmm. No one is disposable. All right. Well, then come to my island. I think, I think. The rest of the world should get to see what loving accountability can look like. I think it would do wonders against this whole anti-CRT crowd if they got to see, like, we're not coming. Like, this whole cancel cancel culture debate can be interrupted. There's so many reasons I can think of to do this show. And I know just the group to pitch it to. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm fleshing this shit out. You let's can complain. No, let's get a let's get a whole Google Drive, Google Doc started. Ideas, funding, scripts. I know you're already writing it out in your head. It, I know you're already imagining your first guests. And it'll be the dive in justice. Like it'll, it'll be connected to the pod and everything. It'll be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a great time. Um, let's do it. Let's do it. Cause what the fuck else are we doing with our day? That's right. Um, all right. When we come back, we are going to introduce our guest. Been trying to get this brother on the pod for a while. And, uh, so, so excited to, to finally get him here. Uh, Dr. Bio, Ekomolafe will be joining us shortly. Please, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you for giving Diving Justice a listen. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple of things you could do to show your support. First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do 
is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dive underscore in underscore justice. Welcome back, everyone. Um, like I said just before the break, we are excited to have today's guest. Dr. Bayo Ekomolafe is with us. He is the chief curator of the Emergence Network, speaker, author, fugitive, neo-materialist, compost activist, public intellectual, and Yoruba poet. Bayo was born in 83 into a Christian home, into a Yoruba parents in Western Nigeria, Losing his diplomat father to a sudden heart complication, Bio became a reclusive teenager seeking to get to the heart of the matter as a response to his painful loss. After meeting with traditional healers as part of his quest to understand trauma, mental well-being, and healing in new ways, his deep questions and concerns for decolonized landscapes congealed into a life devoted to exploring the nuances of a magical world too promiscuous to fit neatly into our fondest notions of it. Now living between India and the United States, Bayo is a father of Alethea, Anya, Kai, and Kaya, Jaden, Abayomi. He's married to Ash, his dear life partner of Indian descent. Bayo is a widely celebrated international speaker, teacher, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, and We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. He is also the Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Emergence Network and host of the online pro-activist course, We Will Dance with Mountains. Um, I had the opportunity to meet this brother on a um, virtual community series call hosted by the Center for Whole Communities um, must have been about a year ago now, maybe a little more. And um, <clears throat> was instantly taken with the brother, what he had to offer and how it was offered. And I knew from that moment that I wanted to get him on this pod. And so it took a bit of backflipping, coordinating, recoordinating, rescheduling, scheduling, but we finally got him on here. And I'm so excited uh, for myself. And I'm excited for you all as listeners to be able to spend some time with the good doctor. Uh, Brother Bio, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and welcome. Thank to the you, show. brother. Thank you, sister. I'm great. I'm grateful to be here. Yes, yes, yes. So I just wanted our listeners to know before I hand it over to Shandine that um, you are in India right now, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the time difference, right? So the time difference. He's he's taking time out of his evening uh, to be with us, and so uh, I just want to acknowledge that and, and, and send my appreciation and gratitude to you for that. But Shandine, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get the first pass at the brother. Yeah. Um, thank you. I also want to send appreciation to your family. Who, if this is family time, that they are, um, and I know what that's like when I have to run into the living room when my littles were little and could sit and say, "Sorry, sorry," like I'm going to do this thing real fast, but then I'm going to come out, and then we're going to, you know, especially listen to your intro about your, uh, your, your amazing skill set of your nightly archives of dishes, and dishes. so, um, 
grateful to your family for um, sharing you with us for just a moment. I want to jump right in to, I have been um, reading your books and watching lots of, and watching lots of videos that you're hosted on and lots of um, uh, uh, listening to you on, on different podcasts that you've been on. And one of the things that struck me the most this morning was listening to you talk about one of my favorite books, um, Things Fall Apart. And yeah. you were you were using that as an entree to talking about the politics of visibility and mm. what the politics of visibility lock us into. Mm. And you had a metaphor of tricarcerality. Yeah. That really struck me. And it was around the, and I'm, I'm going to quote you, and I hope I don't quote you wrong because it, it's really, it's just, it's resonating so much. It's once you frame your emancipation within the epistemology of your oppress of your oppression or slash oppressors, you run the risk of reinforcing your incarceration. Yeah. And then you invited us into this triangle concept of tricarcerality. And I'm wondering if you could explain that to our listeners. Mm. Well, it's, uh, there's a Yoruba proverb that is when two elephants fight, it is the ground that suffers, right? Um, that was immediate and urgent in my framing of tricarcerality. And in, in a very uncomfortable nutshell, because I don't like nutshells, um, Tricarcerality is the invitation to notice the ironic risks of victory, right? That even winning could lock us into the game, right? And this is speaking not from some abstractual cosmic notion but or space, but from real embodied historical um, experiences especially of the African people and how we won the wars that chased away our colonial masters, right? From the eight, from the uh, mid 18 and 19th century leading up to the 20th century, 1945, 1960, um, the 1970s, we won. We lowered down the Union Jack, right? We chased away the British people, but when we're done with winning, we looked around us and saw that we were not the same. I don't know that we noticed. This is in retrospect. But we had inherited the game of the masters. We now had to deal with flags and constitutions and the apparatus of the nation state. And we now had to go to the UN and listen to, you know, it's, it's like fleeing a plantation, a cotton plantation, a slave plantation, and arriving in white real estate, right? It's, it's like modernity. Um, maybe one of the reasons this, this uh, slave plantation uh, fell apart was because it was no longer economically viable. And because the masters had already done the, the larger work of reconfiguring the larger landscapes that made the slave plantation possible or that needed the slave plantation. So tricarcerality is notices how um, the conditions that we try to um, fight to change uh, 
and the the ones that we identify as oppressors, um, the, there are three parties here. So the oppressors, the oppression, and the anti-oppressors are locked in a fixed epistemology, right? It is as we fight each other to change each other. Sometimes that struggle, that struggle is resourced and enabled by a metaphysics, a uh, uh, a, a particular way of knowing the world. It's like anti-racism. Uh, it, it sounds good in the mouth, but it, what it does is that it's, it's barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> it has the wrong guy. It creates the racist. The racist is the pixelation of more than rational forces. What the racist is, is like a congealing of things that are beyond human and stuffing it into the human individual. And what we do in naming the racist is to um, unintentionally cut off all the things that make the individual the individual. We cut off all the things that we're connected to. And so we perpetuate colonial mastery because colonization is the dissociation of the self from ecology. Anti-racism actually inadvertently perpetuates that mastery, that field of mastery, in focusing its crosshairs on the enemy, which is the racist, right? So in that sense, we use the epistemology of the master to create and further um, perpetuate colonization, which is, uh, in some sense, yes, a pyrrhic victory. I appreciate your explanation of it. I It, it invites uh, me, I, I would say, and others, but I don't want to speak for this, it invites me to, um, to rethink or to think more deeply about, it feels like what I've been pushing for almost my entire life, my entire career. Mm-hmm. I'm Chicana from New Mexico mm-hmm. and Laguna Pueblo, indigenous to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, indigenous women in the United States we're raped one in three yeah. and more than, and our percentages that will not only one in three, but that we will be raped more than once in our lifetime yeah. because we aren't seen. It's just a given my, my sons. And I've said this before on this pod, even I think can look at all of my aunties in our family and know it's a guarantee that this is what will happen to us if it has not already. And so I feel like my entire career has been about just see us, just see us. So I work at writing curriculum. I work at like writing policy to, to ensure that our, our histories and our life that we're humanized in, in the K-12 schooling system in the United States. Um, And part of what I was learning while listening to you was an invitation to rethink the, whose gaze we're focusing on. Yeah. Of, of asking them to, to see us. Um, and so I just want to offer appreciation for what I feel like your invitation on the reframe is around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and know that um, I, I've been thinking deeply about what some of the, I think what you call fugitive pathways yeah. and, and naming grief and staying with the trouble and losing shape, like what those look like so that our gaze, so that our, our effort isn't all about focusing on them seeing us. Yeah. And it, and it reminds me of this nation who was 
in the South, in the um, Southern United States, who was fighting for tribal recognition. And when they were um, tribal recognition by the nation Mm -hmm. to be a federally recognized tribe. And when they were faltering and and just getting beat down, uh, feeling hopeless, their tribal leader said to him, we're not asking if you want to be treated like a sovereign, act like a sovereign. We're not asking. And it feels like there was almost something in the in the naming the grief, being on the ground, becoming animal, like you say, not in the monster way, but in the like becoming that that there's truth and beauty and exploration there. My follow up question to you is coming from a almost a personal place. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. What advice or, 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 or examples or, or other um, pathways would you offer us who are, who are hearing that, seeing it, granting that premise? And even if, if for me, it's an aspirational one. What would you offer us in that vein? There's an apocryphal saying, apocryphal, because there isn't historical evidence to support that it is from these people. Chinese, a so-called Chinese saying, um, three curses. Have you guys heard of it? The first one is, may you live in interesting times. The second curse is, uh, may you may you be seen by the emperor. And then the third and last curse is, may you get what you want. It's shocking, because those would be prayers where I come from. But they saw this as a curse. Um, May you be seen by the emperor is a curse because um, once you're... Once you're categorized and indexed and named, and it's a form of violent capture all over again, right? Like the human, what we call the human is a political project, is a terraforming planetary movement that exceeds the humans, that exceeds oppressors and enemies, that we're all in it together in some sense, even those of us fighting against it, even Sylvia Winters, who names it as the man, right? Recognize that we're all in this together in some sense. We are up against very deeply powerful principalities. And these forces are shaping the planet. You know, these are very strong feelings, traumatic, effective, spiritual. Um, so I understand what you mean when you say it's difficult. It is difficult. Where the, the, the struggle is real. The urge to win is very, very overwhelming. The urge to grab the racist by the scruff of their necks and, and shake them out of their, their racism, I guess, is, is deeply, I don't know, it's, it's troublingly overwhelming. Um, I mean, my son is on the spectrum and sometimes when he has a meltdown, I want to hold him and shake him out of it. I I see with a deep sense of embarrassment. I wanna I wanna like just look me in the eye. Just look at me. Look at me in the eye. Don't 
don't avert your gaze. See me, approach my sanity and become me. There's something violent about that. So I, I, I know what you, you, you mean, sister, but, but I also um, think that we are, uh, that, that feeling is not all there is, that there are other things afoot. And this is why I am deeply interested in ways that some might even suggest discountenances experience and, and decenters the personal just for a little while to focus on other territorial flows. This is why I centralize trickster or the trickster or the archetype of the trickster. Because I don't, I don't know that we can get through this shit by our own selves. I don't know that we can solve this problem. I don't know that all our racial sensitivity trainings will we do those things that the objectives say that they will do. I don't know that our politics, which is exhausted and tiring right now, can meet this moment. We need a mistletoe, you know, using the Norse mythology of the mistletoe breaking Baldor. We need a crack. We need to be disabled. We need co- decoloniality is on learning mastery, but it's not pedagogically convenient. We don't just up and go. It takes on a, a rupture, an opening for us to gather around it. So in a sense, Shandine, this may not be yours to experience in this lifetime, but I don't know that your lifetime is limited by your lifespan. I think our work is intergenerational. It must be generous enough to include failure. It must be generous enough to be open to the fact that we will die many times and we will need to in order to experience life and participate in this life-death saga that we rudely call reality in a new way. And maybe that's all I can say. I, um, in reading through your um, curriculum, and some of the offerings, and particularly um, your work around We Will Dance with Mountains. I pulled quite a bit out from there. And on my flight, I was just kind of reading through some of your um, bullet points. Um, key phrases, Blackness, science is colonial force, yeah. ecology is a trust, making sanctuary. And as I was reading it, I was formulating a billion questions for you, like way more than I knew we would have time for, right? <laughs> and I could see- You're saying we poetic. don't have time for a billion? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying we don't have time for a billion, right? Got it, got um, it. <laughs> I found the writing itself highly academic, poetic, almost esoteric, to the point where I'm like, I love what I can understand in here. And then there's so much of this I can't grasp or get yeah. my hands on. Right. And I need to hang out with Bio long enough. Like, I'm going to just have to go to India and knock on their door and just be like, yo, so I'm here for about a month or two. Let's <laughs> just chop it up before I can really get a sense of the, the fullness of this. So I'm going to say this. What I'm interested in, what I've been interested in, what I often ask 
guests about is this let me create for you a magical place separate from the society we currently understand. I want to give everybody the resources they need. I want to build infrastructure that's green from the ground up. And what if we made it so that we can maximize the talents, the gifts, the interests of the most people possible, right? So physical and mental health and ability and gender and sexuality and queering and race. And like, we gonna, I'm, I got this utopia in my head, basically, this technological utopia in my head, some kind of shit, if you will, right? <clears throat> so as I'm reading your work, I'm like, these are some of the questions we should be asking, at least the ones I can understand and grasp the concept of. I'm like, this is it. Like, this brother's helping me create um, a, a, he's contributing to a blueprint that could potentially, you know, these are the questions we should be asking ourselves. As I'm listening to you talk to Shandeen just now, what's occurring to me that had not occurred to me before, and I want to put this to you, I think experimentation, failure, fugitive living, the idea that I'm going to do things differently, I'm going to try to reject the hegemony as much as I can. I'm going to try to embrace the concept of trans raciality and not deal in the dynamics and the binaries. And is there a privilege in that? Is there an inherent privilege in that? Let me put it another way. Being from Flint, Michigan, and and growing up in a in a culture in which showing up to the to the auto factory and putting in as many hours as they had let you, right? It's how you make sure your kids have access to fill in the blank. Survival mechanism, survival mode, day to day, you know, just really caught up in the grind and in the cycle while navigating increasing poverty as General Motors is pulling out. I'm looking at your work and I'm like, yes, but how the hell could I offer this to the folks in my in the communities I know? How could I make this appealing? Do they even have a headspace for that? What does it mean to be able to afford to fail? What's at stake if I get this wrong? Who loses out? And if I got these babies to feed, why the hell should I even get us a shot? Right. So I guess my question to you is, who's the who are you talking to? Who's your audience? Who are you inviting into this space? Because um, I can't believe it's for everybody as much as we would like it to be. So I'm wondering how you hold that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, not absolutely. Nothing is absolute in that sense. <laughs> but you know what I mean, brother. Mm hmm. Um, mm hmm. I'm not going to pretend as if I don't know what you mean by privilege. I'm going to play with the senses mm -hmm. of the word, the term that are emerging within conversation. Mm -hmm. And to say that privilege is and can be disabling. Mm -hmm. Privilege mm -hmm. can be a disability. I spoke to, um, I spoke with uh, the, the graduates 
at the, I gave a commencement speech at Pacifica last year, 2021, to the 2020 and 2021 class. And I asked a question that has been resonating within the community and I've gotten some feedback. I was like, here you, are, here you guys are, you've succeeded. And you would expect that you're going out into this wild and crazy world to even succeed more. But what if success is now a disability? Thinking about how the world is constantly moving and emerging, never static, never an easy and convenient container of already made up concepts. What if the, the picture, the images we have of success are part of the problem? Right? You would expect, I have a degree now, or several degrees. Now I will get my car, if you don't already have one. I will get my white fenced house, and I will get a job, a well-paying job. Those are the ways that we are acculturated into the familiar. Maybe the familiar is part of the trouble. When I speak of fugitivity, I'm not speaking of another kind of privilege. In a sense, you could call it a privilege. Words are semantically plastic and can be stretched to mean different things. But I'm speaking about a disability. I'm speaking about a crack in privilege. I'm speaking about not something that someone adopts unilaterally and says, okay, I like these things. I'm going to take on this worldview. I'm going to refuse this and refuse that and refuse that. I'm speaking about coming to a place where it is impossible for us to continue, where we will find and thrive in the places that are divergent or away from the other congregations where privilege dwells. I'm saying right now that privilege is a problem, um, not a pathology, not something that is an evil, but it is a problem because the ways that we've created settlements in the planet is what geologists now call the Anthropocene. So it does have real troubling effects. So this is the time of the fugitive. This is the time of the what Morton would call the hypo-subject, the one who knows how to live underneath the soil, the one who knows how to plant in his or her backyard, right? right? The one who knows how to detect food in wild places. This is not the picture of privilege we're used to. This is the enculturation or the emergence of new sensibilities. This is education in the wilds. This is becoming more than human, so to speak, or living outside a human, right? Let's think about racism, for instance. Racism is premised on and, you know, swivels around the figure of the individual, even anti-racism, as I've said in my analysis of tricarcerality. Um, that, uh, you, you could say that anti-racism is a privileged perspective <laughs> because it is premised on a colonial notion that we are conveniently divorced from ancestrality, from ecology, and all those things. Fugitivity is the invitation to let our social analytics be be softer, be, is to let our determination of who the enemy is be a little bit porous, enough for us to travel away from our addictions to enemies and to villains. That is fugitivity. It is the disability that disturbs privilege.
in that sense, a post-humanist or animist response to anti-racism and that tricarceral relationship would be to get lost. The Yoruba people say, in order to find your way, you must get lost. Brother, that's not a position of privilege. It's, 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 it's what you have to do to live. I'm speaking of to live and thrive in the world. We cannot continue in the ways that we're used to. Um, maybe just to wrap this up, I, I hope this lands better. <clears throat> that I lived in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo for many years in my life. I grew up there when I wasn't in Nigeria. My father was a diplomat there. And so we were stationed there. The reason why we came back to Nigeria when, when we did was um, because the dictator, Mobutu Sesseko, his soldiers came and killed people, especially foreigners. And we were numbered too. They came into our homes. They put guns on us. They almost killed us. We were marched out. Soldiers with big guns chased us. It's described in my book. Um, in the morning, surprisingly, we were still alive, but we had to move because several battalions, several, <laughs> I don't know if the right term is battalions, but several groups of renegade soldiers, angry with the government for not paying their salaries, would come into our homes, take everything. There were dead bodies in our living room, right? Not ours, obviously, but we had to move in the morning. And so I remember that moment as vividly as I see my hand right now, that we needed to run through bushes to live. We needed to run through gutters to scratch our feet on shrapnel and bullets and stuff. We needed to avoid a road. The whole country was in war to get to the embassy, to some semblance of safety. We needed to take the rough paths. We eventually did and we survived. Can you say that that's a form of privilege, that escaping the highway? I don't know. You could say that, I guess. And if you could say that, then I guess fugitivity is a queer form of privilege. But to the extent that I'm able to analyze and think these things through, I think fugitivity is, the, is, is not something you take on just because you find it fine and dandy. It's something you're forced into is when home can no longer tolerate you, is when home rejects you, is when you become a refugee. It's right there in the word, fugitivity and the refugee. So we needed to steal away into the dark to find new ways of being alive. We're in such a time when the privileges that were afforded by white modernity are being hollowed out and the foundations upon which the white real estate project has been built is no longer supportive of that project, right? It was premised on a foundation that was supposed, supposedly permanent, guaranteed by God himself. But now those concepts are faltering and they're fading away. And now we need to move. Moving is a privilege, maybe, but moving is what we have to do, brother. And so, yeah. What do you do when you have to feed um, pay the bills. Yeah, we'll still pay bills. We'll still matter in the world that way. But maybe the fact that you're pressed down by oppressors, maybe that position under the boots of white modernity might afford you a strange kind of privilege that only the oppressed know about.
Thanks for not only um, really reaching in deep to to hear what Delma was saying, but um, attempting to invite us to a deeper understanding of privilege um, from a context that um, I'm not convinced me or all of our listeners um, are often exposed to. I, I have a, a kind of a follow-up question, but it's around the um, that, that other location, that other space, the the event, the, the wormhole event, like the mm-hmm. wherever the location is that that you alluded to a little bit earlier. It feels like you're committed to helping us others, anyone who's willing to listen, escape the binary versions of thought process, mm-hmm. identifying action, meaning making, and in fact, point to expansive realms beyond our ve- the veils of our conditioning, mm-hmm. um, the expansive realm that, you know, like the, the space in between. What consciousness do uh, individuals possess, have access to, can source from? that emanates from that realm, do you think? Let me put it this way, and, and to, to just launch, to piggyback on the conversation about privilege. Privilege is not a property of certain types of bodies. It's not a property at all. It's not owned by a white body. It's not owned by an educated black body. It's not owned by, it's not owned by a brown body. It's not owned in a sense. It's an, it's an intensity. It's a field that is generated and secreted by certain conditions of possibility that is characterized by entitlements and certain modes of moving in the world, certain ethnographies. It's what people, I think, in the United States are now um, naming as the Karen, right? The Karen as the embodiment of privilege and entitlement, except that I think that's something rather unfortunate too. It, that's another form of reductionism. You take the streaming animist world and you situate it within the individual and then you create a category. Modernity loves categories, right? It loves dissociated categories that way. So privilege is an intensity of field. But in generating that field, you exclude other things, right? You just don't, you, in some utopian fashion, conjure rights and entitlements. The nation state, whatever you might think of it um, as this broad terrain of acting, this cartographical project, this realm of entitlements and the census and citizenry, whatever you might think of it, it excluded certain ways of being in the world in order to guarantee legality, and perpetuity for the citizen. It basically brought a contract, if you're to think of it that way. It's convenient for our purposes. Here's a contract. In order for you to thrive in this situation, you have to agree to these terms and conditions. The fine print, right? You have to, you have to let go of the idea that you are more than yourself. You have to tick the box when we ask, what's your identity? Because that's the only way we can name you and categorize you. So Delma has to say, I'm a black man, right? You cannot say that you're black and something else. You have to name yourself within this space. So even privilege enacts certain violent exclusions. This is what I don't, this is what uh, uh, Wehelie says, that even the politics of that seeks inclusion is a violent enactment 
of, you know, or, or exclusion of other kinds of beings and becomings. So when we think of privilege that way as not all good, then we notice that something is missing. Something is missing. If you stand and live on the pyramid, at the top of the pyramid, there isn't a lot of space to move, right? <laughs> Whereas there's a lot of space at the bottom of the pyramid, right? So we as citizens seeking justice, seeking recognition from the nation state are inadvertently seeking a deeper, stronger, more resilient kind of incarceration. Incarceration from what? What are we excluding? We're excluding ancestrality. We're excluding the fact that identity is nomadic and diasporic. It is not as situated within our bodies as we think it is. Americans, I guess, or Westerners like to quote that African proverb. It's a meme. They say, uh, the, what's it about? What, what does it say again? The child in the village. Um, takes a village. Uh, it takes a village uh, there to you raise go. a child. A book by Hillary yeah. Clinton. It takes a village. To, but I, guess, I don't <laughs> think people really understand what that means. They think of a village as a collective of beings. Whereas in Africa, we think of the village as the crossroads that disturbs the notion of the individual. It means, bio, you are a village. You're already a congregation of monsters, right? And this is what psychologists, scientists are beginning to understand slowly today. So, my sister, when you ask what consciousness is, is, um, is a condition of possibility for us to understand the elsewheres, you know, I would say that... Um, the privilege, the privileges afforded us by modernity um, cut us away from psychedelic realities, you know, mm-hmm. from, uh, from lines of um, wisdom and insight and also trouble. You know, I don't want to think of these mm-hmm. things as harmonious and pure, but it cut us away from the wilds and the resources of the wilds. It tells us that our dreams are antecedent or not important. Um, They're just the sporulations of a busy brain as we sleep. But in the world that I come from, everything is animated. It's unwieldy. And this is what modernity is trying to tame. It's unwieldy. It can be troubling. But those are the resources that we need today. Racism needs animism to confront itself. If racism stays within modernity, it will keep on perpetuating this racialization. I was touched by your, um, when I was reading your biography, and it talked about the passing of your father and the idea of your work at trying to, to dig at meaning and to continuously unearth what's underneath. Let's keep going, let's keep going. And I see that reflected in your, your writing, I, I hear it reflected in your conversation. <laughs> and I am really appreciative of, of that search because I think without it, yeah, we're doomed to just perpetuate. Mm-hmm. We're doomed to just recycle and repeat. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's hard work because you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so I think being able to draw from um, as many traditions, as many understandings, as many um, ways of engaging as possible 
is key. Yeah. And I think your invitation to try and to fail yeah. is what gives us permission collectively. Yeah. And so I want to thank you for being so uh, knowledgeable and so professional and so whatever. But at the end of the day, it's like, yo, I don't know either shit. Let's, let's give it a shot. Yeah. Let's, let's work at it together. Right. That's a fine balance to hold. And I appreciate you um, working so hard to hold that and to invite others into that. Last thing before I hand it back to Shandina and let you go. Um, I want to get you back on here. And and so if you're down with that, I just need you to articulate that into the mic so I can hold you accountable. To the <laughs> this is black on black crime. <laughs> I know, right? I'm guilty all day because he's recording it right now. You see the little thing on the bottom, like he's. I know. Yeah, so. I know. I would love to be back. I feel there is a there's a lot more that wants to be said. There's a lot more that needs. We need time to have these rich and troubling conversations. And I think this is the time to do it as the world tifers, uh, uh, stumbles towards uh, another ending. We need time. We need queer time to stay with the trouble. Yeah. Well, when, when we do have you back, we're going to keep um, elevating our questions. Um, yeah, I wanted to, to go at... to those pockets, those troubling pockets to reach the notes, the high notes of... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, love we, would, we would love to do that. We would yeah. love that. Dive In Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on the Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us on the web at thinkshorelines.com. Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Doug Fierenstein is our audio engineer. Susanna McCandless is our administrative support. Jen Cotting and Soraya Yamada Sapien help us out with marketing and promotions. Thank you all so much. Without your continued efforts, this show would not be possible.